I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, we'll recap the year 2021 in U.S. trade policy, and we'll discuss what's ahead for the Biden administration and the U.S. Congress in 2022. We'll also dive into inflation and lingering supply chain issues. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Guys, we're looking at an end-of-the-year recap. Plus, we're looking ahead to 2022. I'm so glad to be back. I've been gone for a couple of weeks, thanks to the incredible Jasmine Lynn for filling in. But you guys couldn't get rid of me so easily. You know that, right? Well, we're glad to have you back, really. We did our best. We tried, Andrew, but here you are, you know. <laughs> Jasmine's awesome. But like, look, I'm going to fight for my position here as, you know, trade guys moderator. Like, th- this is not something I want to give up so easily. But let's talk about trade guys. Guys, what are some of the big wins in the trade world this year? Well, I think for the Americans, return to sanity. No more 3 a.m. tweets. Are we seeing? I mean, like, yeah, I get it. No no 3 a.m. tweets. But, like, have we returned to sanity is really the question. I think we've returned to some semblance of rationality. We've not returned to policy. And we'll get to that. I think we're still trying to figure out what their policy is. They've at least temporarily solved a couple significant irritants. You know, they solved uh, steel with the EU and they're on a track to solve it with other people. And they're on track to, I think, try to take a collective approach to China, which is what we've been recommending for a long time. They kicked the can on Airbus, which was, it was good in the sense that, you know, both sides dropped their retaliation and we're in a kind of a five-year hiatus on that one. There are outlines of a policy beginning to appear in Asia. You know, we need a lot more. But, yeah, I mean, there's some things going on. You know, I think growing unhappiness in the American economic community over the lack of interest in and emphasis on market access. There were farmers today that are, you know, beseeching the administration to negotiate some trade agreements in in Asia, Southeast Asia in particular, because they see a huge growing market and they see themselves being left out. So, you know, that's something that we haven't done that I'm worried about. And I think, frankly, our our approach on the, the WTO has been disappointing. It's not been antagonistic. In fact, it's been uh, overtly supportive, rhetorically, in contrast to Trump. But I think we haven't engaged nearly as much as, as, as we need to have. And we certainly have not engaged on the process issues, the dispute settlement issues that have uh, paralyzed it for the last several years. Well, look, that's the way it feels at ground level. I had the good fortune last week of spending a day in Richmond, Virginia, with basically the Virginia Chamber of Commerce and had a chance to speak to a number of their members who are both at the Port of Richmond and people engaged in international trade in a wide variety of of fields. And they'll acknowledge that, yeah, no more mean tweets. But for most of their businesses, this was like Trump light. There was an acknowledgement. And frankly, Virginia has a lot of trade with Europe. So there was an acknowledgement that uh, there's better optics, sort of better, better music and dance with Europe. And it looks like there's a there's some points that could be resolved. 
But for the ones who are facing tariffs on Chinese imports that were put there by Trump on the Section 301, no change. For those who are looking for progress at the WTO, whether in services or whatever, whatever it might be, no progress. If we're looking for resolution to the, the problems with dispute settlement at the WTO, zero progress. And so this is, this is you know, year one, you, there are lots going on in any new administration and benign neglect is, is at least benign, but this is not going to bode well into the future when people are, are seeking economic growth and they're, they're, what they're finding is no real new commercial opportunities being generated by you know, the administration's policy. Let me ask you this. Is it that Biden has to be tough on trade or because of you know, the posture, especially with you know, public opinion towards China, or is it that this is just the way it is going forward? I mean, you know, what's, what's the deal here? Well, look, I wouldn't frame it exclusively, at least from what I've been hearing, as a U.S.-China dynamic. You know, for instance, how about better trade with the United Kingdom? Well, the Trump administration was negotiating a preferential trade agreement with the U.K. How's that going? Frankly, no progress. It's still under review. Is this because we were against bilateral agreements in this administration and we want a, a broader agreement? I mean, you know, what, what are some of the real differences. There are differences in the trade policy between President Biden and President Trump, not just optic. What are some of the differences you guys have seen? And what is holding up some of the issues that you just mentioned that you learned about in Richmond? I think it's, to go back to your original question, I think on China, he's got very little room to maneuver. And we've talked about that. That's that's not true in, in Europe. It's not true elsewhere. But he's besieged by Republican critics who are trying to convince the American people that the administration in general and Biden in particular are soft on China. We've already got, you know, Republican, we always have Republican senators running for president. It's kind of a, you know, a chronic disease of the American uh, political system. But, you know, we've got four or five of them and this is part of their platform. You know, Biden is undermining our security. So he doesn't have a lot of room to maneuver there. And I think it's been very clear that they're simply not going to do anything that will expose them to further criticism on that point. On the other hand, I think Scott makes a good point. There's a, a whole raft of other issues where we have not stepped up and stepped out. I, I think the UK thing, most people believe, rightly or wrongly, that it's on ice because the Northern Ireland EU, you know, Brexit problem remains unresolved. Well, the border issue. Yeah, the border issue. And that is a priority for the president, who's talked about it frequently, and the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, who apparently is Irish, and, you know, has talked about it uh, a lot as well. And I think, you know, the nobody wants to say it publicly, but I think the UK has got the message that, you know, this that particular negotiation is not likely to go forward until that particular situation is clarified. But I think where Scott is on track is that they really have not developed much of a larger policy on where they want to go. And, and that's on them. You know, it, it's, it's not hemmed in by Republicans or by, you know, geopolitical issues. And, you know, their mantra is uh, a trade policy for the workers. And they're still trying to figure out what, what that means, you know. And it appears to mean rules of origin that favor domestic production. It appears to mean buy America. Uh, and it appears to mean uh, reshoring and nearshoring. And there, that, you know, that's got a big boost because of COVID, 
I mean, there's a lot of a lot of people that are looking at supply chain resiliency issues for very good reasons. But uh, the administration's idea seems to be that we create more jobs by bringing more people back here. I'm not sure that's going to be a successful trade policy, but in, in the short run, it's meant that they're not really doing much of anything. I would agree with Bill. And, you know, for instance, yes, China's a problem and there's not many degrees of, of uh, freedom from, of movement for the president. And that's both uh, his political opponents and American public opinion. But there is the rest of Asia. All right. There are lots of other traders in Asia who would welcome us into the region. What's our strategy? I have no idea, actually, despite having carefully read the announcements. So it's, it's those kinds of things. And yes, yes, there is interest in, in, in reshoring. The administration is definitely interested in, in, in uh, the domestic production. And there's, some, there's a little push and pull here. So they've got to be careful that the, the components that, it, that incentivize this are not undermined by other parts of their plan. For instance, it's one thing to, to have incentives for domestic production, but when, you, when you're also changing corporate tax rates at the same time, you've got to make sure you don't have, you're not repelling the very investment you're trying to attract. It's a tough balance. Well, let me ask you guys this. Bill just mentioned that apparently Nancy Pelosi's Irish. Isn't everybody in America Irish? Only on St. Patrick's Day when it comes to my German relatives and Swiss relatives. I'm saying, you know, I, I think no matter what, where you come from, what your heritage, you know, Irish, when they ask, the public opinion asks, you know, what's the the, the immigrant group or the group, you know, that, that Americans like the best? It's always, you know, Italian and Irish are top, you know, two. So, like, I think everybody in America, you know, is a little bit Irish and a little bit Italian, right? I think for the Italians, it's because they have the best food. Irish, I'm not so sure. Well, both great movies come, you know, both great movie tradition, both great, you know, uh, music, great, you know, we could go on and on. But like, I mean, Van Morrison alone is why everybody in America is Irish, to be honest with you. Anyway, what are some of the key issues that remain unresolved at the end of 2021 that we need to look forward to 2022 with? I'd say the biggest, most immediate one is putting uh, meat on the bone on the, the, the IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. You know, this is the administration's answer to why don't you join CPTPP? And their answer was, well, we're going to have our own framework. And so far, it's a menu approach where they're going to try to gather countries together to agree on large overarching principles and then dipping beneath that, have more specific negotiations on specific things like infrastructure, like trade facilitation, like climate decarbonization. Digital economy will be a big piece of it. Worker standards. So, and countries kind of dip in, can kind of dip in and out of those is the idea. So not every country will be engaged in every negotiation. So it'll be a little like picking and choosing. As it turns out, Matt Goodman and I at CSIS are writing a report on that, a paper on that, basically how to make lemonade out of lemons by, you know, it, it begins with restating our view that joining CPTPP would be the simplest and best answer. But that, given that they're not going to do that, how do you make this into something real? And I think, you know, the administration needs to do a lot of thinking about uh, about how to turn it into something that's real, you know, particularly in the digital space, which, you know, th this is an area that cries out for uh, multilateral rules and commitments on a host of issues. 
And it would be good to, uh, you know, get the administration to be a lot more specific about what their intentions are. Scott? Look, I think uh, I would agree with Bill that the digital space is vitally important to the United States and our future and is, is a, an area deserving of focus. My concern is I don't see a plan for sort of economic growth through international engagement. And that, that will begin to make life really difficult for those Democratic elected officials who are facing the voters this fall or in the fall 2022. You've got to have an argument for continuance in office. Any elected official does if they're trying to get reelected. So what's, what's the argument if, if we presume the big issue is going to be jobs in the economy? What's the story about growth? There isn't one in terms of international trade yet. And that's the one, that's where uh, I'd like to see, if, particularly if I, were, if I were a Democratic member of Congress running for re-election, I'd want to have a story because there's a, there's a counter-narrative. There's a counter-narrative about inflation and, and particularly energy costs and the overall growth, which is going to run into some headwinds as we meet reopening in the year ago. So the numbers are, are going to look good for a little while, but not long enough. People are going to feel the strain of higher prices and I'd like to have a counterpoint to that. International is a logical place for it, but I don't have it now. So that's, that's one of the things I'm hoping to see pretty soon, sooner rather than later in 2022. Well, let's talk about inflation. You know, inflation is what is on everybody's mind when it comes to the economy. Trade has taken a bit of a backseat. Everything's taken a bit of a backseat. So how does this administration deal with the inflation equation and to try to you know, get their economic program on track, their messaging on track, and their trade policy on track. So far, they're dealing with it by saying it's temporary and going to go away next year. Okay. That does not help right now, but yeah. And there's at least a counter argument that it's not temporary. That, look, we've created a lot of dollars in the last couple of years. And uh, while Milton Friedman has, has uh, passed to a better place, uh, Milton Friedman's arguments still resonate. He, he once said uh, that inflation is always and everywhere a, a, a monetary phenomenon. It's caused by monetary policy. And through the pandemic, we and actually the world basically preserved liquidity by creating a lot of, of dollars. And inflation at, at its most basic level is too many dollars chasing too few goods which is the situation we have now, additional federal spending in this, which is the Biden plan, will risk further accelerating the problem. The Build Back Better, which is not yet into law, will increase the level of fiscal stimulus at the time that the Federal Reserve is doing only the most ginger steps, you know, sort of very delicate steps toward tapering. And, you know, ultimately, if you really want to bring double-digit inflation out of the economy, it's the Paul Volcker Ronald Reagan approach, which you know created a pretty pretty sharp recession in, in 1981 uh, to do it. But uh, high interest rates uh, will, will definitely slow the economy down. So there aren't a lot of good choices is what I'm suggesting. And absent a good choice on inflation, I, if I were running for office, I'd like to have a good story on opening markets, which I don't have that either. 
You know, one of the things that has bothered me a bit about the administration is they, on a number of areas, they do have this, we can have our cake and eat it too approach to, uh, to these things that, you know, we can do all this stuff and there won't be any, there won't be any negative effects. And I mean, inflation is, is one, it's all going to go away and we can, you know, grow our way out of it. Uh, maybe they'll be right. You know, I, I, I can't say that they're wrong about that. Larry Summers, I think, thinks they're wrong, but, uh, I'm not smart enough to, have a view on it, but I've noticed this on on some of their um, supply chain reshoring policies because they do tend to say, you know, we can build in resiliency and redundancy, we can reshore or nearshore, and it won't cost more. You know, it'll be fine. And the answer is that's just you know that's just not true. If you're a supply chain manager and you've spent your career focusing on you know, lowest price, best quality, best delivery time, and now somebody comes in and tells you, you have to focus on redundancy and not putting all your eggs in one basket, which happens to be a good value. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But now you have to do that. What that means is you're going to develop supply chains that are not as low cost and efficient as the ones you got. And I think it would have been much better uh, from a policy point of view to, to sort of say that and say, look, you know, it is going to cost more, it is going to be inflationary, but we have to do these things because there are security issues and because the pandemic has told us that, you know, there are situations where we don't want to be out of stuff. Uh, And so we have to reevaluate the way that we think about these things. But their approach tends to be says, well, we can fix all this and it won't cost anything. And I I think ultimately, you know, the people come back and bite them for that. Yeah, that'll lead to disillusion because the fact of the matter is global value chains allowed the United States and other developed economies to essentially import deflation. Price of goods went down for about 20 years on a straight comparison basis because of globalization. When you reverse that, you don't get to keep the gains you 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 acquired. You give it back. Because we had so much stuff in this country. That's why, right? Because we had so many clothes that clothes became cheap, etc. Well, lots of things became a lot cheaper, Uh, and some of it was global value chains, like like electronic products and apparel and footwear and and all sorts of everyday needs that that consumers satisfied. So, yeah, and that was a long process of, of slow accumulation, but it's the reason that inflation was very manageable for about 30 years, and it's the reason the current numbers, I mean, today, producer pricing increases are reported up 9.6% 9.6% last month. 9.6 rounds to 10. That's what's called double-digit inflation. Right. And we haven't had that in 40 years, right? Exactly. And so this is this is what they're facing. And and I don't think that it's it'll be tenable for them to sustain the sort of the the argument, the policy argument that yeah, this, we'll be able to reshore for free. We won't. So we've got a supply chain, a continuing supply chain problem. There was a, a cream cheese shortage a couple of weeks ago. Crisis in New York, couldn't get a bagel with a schmear. People could not get Philadelphia cream cheese, like the greatest cream cheese known to mankind that's not, you know, homemade in some bagel store, right? I mean, it's a pretty good product, like for something that's that consistent. Couldn't get Philadelphia cream cheese. The guys at the Giant were telling me, he's like, you know, hey, buddy, you're out of luck. We don't have any. That's a pretty big deal. And I can tell you in the Jewish community, it's it's a complete crisis to not have cream cheese. Okay, but I can tell you're really offended by this. Now, that's a domestic product, importantly. Yeah, th- this is a problem. Okay, this this is resonating all over from coast to coast, you know, L.A. to New York to D.C. Now, is is there a locks crisis, too? 
No, no, locks are good. Locks are good. And I don't know if that's because we're on good terms with the Canadians currently. You can tell me more about that. But, you know, cream cheese shortage is a problem. Okay, it's like saying we would have a salsa shortage or a, a, a soy sauce shortage or a ketchup shortage. I mean, it is, that's a Americans don't like that. So we got problem with supply chains coming up on double digit inflations. What do you guys hope to see accomplished in the first few months of 2022? What should their top priorities be to address all of this? First is to take it seriously. I, I think so far, at least the messages I've heard from the administration, particularly on inflation, is this is this is a transitory phenomenon. And you know, well, look, everything's transitory. You know, uh, when when a pope pa- passes away, they use that precisely that phrase in the Latin Mass. So yes, we're all transitory at some point. Uh, but the idea that it's that it's going to go away is probably not valid. What we have to do is have some serious ways to think about it. And so I think as a, I've been a free trader for a long time. I know the reason you engage internationally is for better uh, range of goods at a broader range of prices, that it makes the economy grow faster. And so I've had part of my story be the power of international engagement. It helps in a lot of ways, but they're going to need a story here that, that's not, hey, it's transitory. Bill? Let me take an optimistic perspective for a minute. Scott, this is a first. We've got a, an optimistic red flashing <laughs> light. Optimism from, from Bill Ride. Here Listeners, we go. take okay. note. <laughs> Let's take an optimistic note. Let's hope that once the uh, holiday season is over, the consumer demand spike eases off a little bit, port backlogs ease off a little bit, and you know things begin to, begin to taper off and, and the, the rate of inflation begins to subside so that we don't end up with double digits. We end up back in the, you know, 3% range, which is more than it has been, but not intolerable. And I think, you know, let's hope the administration can also recognizes that some of the policies that they're pursuing can make that situation worse rather than better. This point that Scott has made countless times on, on the podcast has been that, you know, one of the things that that open trade does is keep prices low. If you're fighting inflation, keeping prices low is, is, is a good thing. When there is no inflation, it's very easy to say we need to focus on worker benefits and we need to focus on, on uh, the climate and we need to focus on all these social things. But if we're heading toward double-digit inflation, you know, uh, the benefits that it might accrue to, to workers by other policies are going to be offset by price increases. So, you know, I, I think that... Dealing with inflation aggressively needs to be their number one, their number one task, and uh, an outward-looking uh, strategy that is uh, growth-promoting is is going to be important. They seem to have forgotten that there's millions of Americans out there who want to sell more stuff, beginning with farmers, you know. And this is, you know, exports are an unalloyed, incontestable benefit to the economy. You know, it's all a good thing. It, it promotes jobs, it promotes growth, people make more money. And they, I'm frustrated that they don't seem very interested in, in making that one of their priorities. There's glimmers of hope in the Commerce Department, you know, for trade missions. But even there, you know, mo- most presidents have begun, of either party, you know, begin their administrations with 
boatloads of, you know, or not boatloads, plane loads of CEOs and the Secretary of Commerce going off to various locations to make deals. And we really haven't seen that with, uh, with this administration, and it's a missed opportunity. Yeah, my hope is, uh, actually was, was uh, uh, noticed yesterday, this is not about trade, it's really about economic growth, uh, is a comment made by uh, the governor of Colorado, uh, Jared Polis, Democratic governor of Colorado, who was a member of Congress, worked with him on a CSIS project when he was a uh, member of the House, basically said, hey, the emergency's over, let's get back to work. And I think that may be the big overall message that would do the most good. If you want to get things delivered better, you need more truckers. To get more truckers, you got to get people back to work. You got to get get employment demand going. You got to stabilize things. And so I think the sooner that that uh, Governor Polis's message gets broadly in the country, look, emergency's over. Time to get back to work. Do you think that's going to be a Democratic talking point from Democratic public officials? Because, you know, one of the things that the Democrats have sort of seemed to refuse to do is get on message with the rest of the American people, which is one of the reasons why a lot of these opinion polls you're seeing are very, very low. You know, the Build Back Better Act has a, you know, 60 plus percent approval rating, but Biden has a lower than 40 percent approval rating. And are they are they just off message here, Scott? With regard to Governor Polis, what I yeah. do know is he's a smart guy. He yeah. was a tech executive, uh, uh, independently wealthy when he before he ran for office. Very successful individual. I think he sees it clearly that it's you know we we gotta we gotta stop treating the economy like a light switch, get back to to work, and uh, let let things sort themselves out. I think we should bring Governor Polis on the trade guys because you know there's a couple reasons. Yeah, why don't, why don't we do that? There's a couple of reasons. One, we can talk this issue through. Two, we can like hit them up for, you know, chalets in Beaver Creek or something come springtime, right? We could do that. Yeah, he's, he's ahead of the curve on this issue, so I'll give him credit for that. I'd love to have him on the, on the show. <laughs> no interest in skiing, though, I guess. You'll leave that to me. I'll, I'll, leave, I'll, I'll hang around the lodge while you ski. All right, sounds good. <laughs> Bill, are you for bringing on Governor Paz? I think that would be awesome. I think it's a good idea. I met him also. I met him when I was at the NFTC, and I, I found him to be uh, very sharp, very incisive, and uh, very honest in how he approached issues and, and uh, blunt. Uh, he'd be a good guest. All right. So that's on the to-do list for 2022. Trade guys, we're going to have to sign off for here for 2021, but we will be back, and we will be back better. In 2022. We'll be building back better, yes. We're going to, yeah, we'll be back better. We're not going to build back better. We are going to be back better. So Merry Christmas, Happy New Year's, Happy Holidays to all of our listeners. We will see you in the new year. Bill and Scott, the best to you and your families. All best from us. Thank you. And the same back to you. Thank you. If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.